be reading the scripture today, this morning, so grab your copy of God's Word. Use your own Bible or the Bible that's provided in the pew in front of you. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. I'll give you a moment to find your way there. And then let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Thanks, Chris. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing all right this morning. I uh, want to give a quick uh, caveat before we get going here. I uh, had a number of questions from last week's sermon, and I had told some people that I was going to be doing a little tidy up before I got going in my sermon from last week's sermon. But then the sermon got so long, I don't have time for it. So I'm going to record that and send it out in email this week. So just watch your email this week. So if you, one of the people who asked me some questions about last week, uh, just watch for your email. But this morning, uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, and we're picking up here as Chris has read for us in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And we come to one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, but certainly in 2 Corinthians, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's a beautiful verse. And it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, certainly probably one of my favorite verses uh, in 2 Corinthians. And if you've been a Christian for a while, no doubt you've, you've heard of this verse, or at least you've heard of the idea of being a new creation in Christ. And if you came to Christ as an adult, or maybe uh, in your, your teens you have memories of it, uh, perhaps uh, you can recall the existential experience of becoming a new creation. Maybe you were an alcoholic before Christ and now you're not, or you were angry or lustful or envious or despairing before Christ and now you're not. The Holy Spirit of Jesus entered your life and your life was miraculously changed. And Paul writes of this transforming experience all throughout his letters, but he writes about it frequently in his Corinthians correspondence. And so back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is how he talks about it, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 11. He says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. To be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be made a new creation. Christians aren't perfect, of course. 
and we're all in process and we're not finished products, but something miraculous happens inside of us when God unites us to Jesus by His Holy Spirit. But here's our question this morning. How exactly does the Holy Spirit affect change in our lives like that? What happens in the new creation experience that transforms an angry person into a peaceful person or transforms a despairing person into a person of hope? What does God actually do to us when He makes us a new creation in Christ? Does He, does he sprinkle Holy Spirit pixie dust over us? Right? Does He spiritually brainwash us or hypnotize us? Does He take away our will? What actually happens to us when we are made new creations in Christ? Let me give you the answer at the front end of the sermon here, and then we're going to spend the sermon trying to work, work this out. The chief thing that God does when He makes us new creatures in Christ is He gives us a new way of regarding. He gives us Christ's way of regarding. So here's what I want to do this morning, because that may not make sense right away. First, we're going to look at what it means to have a new way of regarding and then how this is connected to being a new creation in Christ. And then we're going to look at regarding in this new way in two spheres of life, the world and ourselves. Now, originally I had intended to look at four spheres, the world, ourselves, others, and Jesus. But then as I was writing it, the sermon was getting so long that I just decided we're going to stick with the first two spheres. We're going to pick up the next two spheres next week. So stay tuned for that. They're coming. But this morning, we're going to see how this new way of regarding is connected to being a new creation in Christ and then how this new way of regarding transforms our relationship with the world and with ourselves. All right, so on into our passage here, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. Verse 16 starts this way, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. So there's a lot of regarding going on in verse 16. And Paul says, from now on. Well, now on from when? Well, verse 16 is following verses 14 and 15. And as we saw last week in verses 14 and 15, Paul is talking about how Christ dies for all because all are dead in sin, but then God makes us alive in Christ so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. And so Paul is referring to this conversion experience, this conversion moment. And he's saying, he's saying because we now live with Christ and for His sake, and we no longer live for ourselves, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So Paul is saying, ever since we became alive in Christ, ever since our conversion, we have stopped regarding others according to the flesh. So this regarding no one according to the flesh is linked to our conversion. But what does Paul mean by regarding others according to the flesh? 
Now, in order to make sense of this, we have to understand two things. We have to understand what Paul means by flesh, and then we have to understand what Paul means by regarding someone according to the flesh. All right, so first, this term flesh. Paul is using the term flesh here to denote our physical, visible, earthly existence when considered independent of God. For Paul, the flesh is not inherently a bad thing. It only becomes a bad thing when we think it's the only thing. When all of our values and our goals and our ambitions for life are governed by our bodies, by our physical senses, or in the words of Jesus, when what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear and what am I going to drink become the driving questions of our lives. So so some synonyms for flesh could be here earthly or bodily or physical. All right, so Paul is thinking about not regarding according to the earthly way or the fleshly way or the physical way. All right, so if Paul, if for Paul flesh denotes our earthly physical existence considered in isolation from God, what does he mean when he says that he doesn't regard anyone according to the flesh? Now, most literally and a bit awkwardly for translators, the original Greek text reads something like, we know according to the flesh no one. It's kind of Yoda speak. But Paul is referring to the manner in which he regards people. His point is not, we no longer think about others as if they are flesh, but rather we no longer think in a fleshly way about others. In other words, Paul is saying that because he now lives in Christ, his way of regarding people, or we could say his way of seeing people, has changed. He's been given new sight. People still are what people have always been. That hasn't changed. But Paul sees them differently now. He no longer has a flesh way of seeing people. Now that he's in Christ, he has a Christ way of seeing people. And if you've been following along in our sermon series, you'll know that this Christ way of regarding is a major reason for why Paul is writing his letter of 2 Corinthians. Because the false apostles, these, these ministers of, the, of a false gospel who have come in behind Paul and are, and are teaching the Corinthians wrongly, these, these super apostles were teachers of the flesh, And they could only regard according to the flesh. And they were teaching the Corinthians to also regard according to the flesh. And they made their boast, as Paul says, look in chapter 5, verse 12, just a few verses up in your text. You can see it right there. They made their boast, Paul says, in the outward appearance and not what is in the heart. And because they could only see with the eyes of flesh, they were calling Paul's ministry into question because Paul's ministry, when looked at just from an outward appearance, could only be seen as marked by suffering and persecutions and trials. So to all outward appearances, Paul's ministry looked like a failure. But it wasn't a failure any more than Jesus' ministry was a failure. But you had to have the eyes of Christ, not the eyes of the flesh, to see Paul's ministry for what it really was. So to regard according to the flesh is to see only what the flesh can see. 
is to see only on the surface of things. But to regard according to Christ is to see what Christ can see past the surface, down into the heart of things. So back in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul uses the analogy of the Christian being like a jar of clay that has a treasure inside. To regard the clay jar with the eyes of the flesh is to see only the clay jar. But to regard the clay jar with the eyes of Christ is to see through the clay jar to the treasure within. So regarding according to Christ is a bit like having spiritual x-ray vision. And this new capacity to see beyond the surface of things, Paul tells us in verse 17, comes from being in Christ. So back to our text, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we are put into Christ at our conversion. To be a new creation is to mean being united spiritually with Christ. And because we are united spiritually with Christ, we have a new way of regarding. We have Christ's way of regarding. We no longer regard the world according to the old way, the flesh way. We now regard the world according to the Christ way. And that's what it means to be a new creation. So verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone now has the capacity to regard the world in the way that Christ regards the world, to look at the world with the Christ eyes, he's a new creation. The old way of regarding has gone and the new way of regarding and seeing has come. To be a new creation means that I have been united to Christ and raised with Christ and my entire way of regarding the world has changed. Through my spiritual union with Jesus, his way of seeing the world has become my way of seeing the world and my spiritual blindness is stripped away and I've come to see that the true meaning of the world lies deep within and beyond the surface of the world. I've come to see that there's more to the world than what I can see of it with my eyes of flesh. The surface appearance of things remains the same, but now I see it all differently. Somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, by the Spirit of God, I've come to see the God within and beneath and over all of it the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. It's like the whole world goes from black and white to color or from 2D to 3D. Suddenly, everything starts to make sense. And because I see the world now as it really is, as it truly is, I was blind to like half of the most ultimate things of reality. Now I see what's true suddenly it starts to make sense and Jesus' commands begin to make sense to me in ways that they didn't before. I mean, self-denial and loving those who don't love you in return and praying for those who persecute you and giving alms to those who can't give back. When we regard the world according to the flesh, none of that makes any sense. But when I become a new creation in Christ, 
and the eyes of my heart are opened, suddenly it all begins to make sense to me. And because it now makes sense to me, I freely and joyfully make Christ's commands my own. And my life is transformed accordingly. And now I understand why it's okay to suffer and why I should love those who don't love me and why I don't need to be greedy and self-indulgent and vindictive. Listen, if we, either as Christians or as non-Christians, try to live out the commands of Christ apart from the new creational capacity to regard the world like Christ, we will find his commands cumbersome and burdensome and ultimately impossible. But when the whole world snaps into focus, suddenly the yoke of Jesus becomes easy and light, even when this yoke involves suffering and self-denial. I'm going to say a word here before continuing on to my non-Christian friends that come. You come, perhaps, you're a young person that comes against your will with your parents. Perhaps you're a parent that brings your kids because you think it's good for your kids, but you yourself aren't quite sure about all of it. I don't know what it might be. But if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I'm glad you're here. But I would just say to you, maybe as I'm talking about this, you think to yourself, I would like to see the world through the Christ eyes. But you can't make yourself see. Seeing through the eyes of Christ is a gift of grace that God gives to us. And when you know, you know. And when you see, you've seen. But if you haven't seen and you don't know, then you haven't seen and you don't know. And I don't know how to describe it to you except that when you know, you know. And I would encourage you to seek out and ask God to ask him to open your eyes, to give you just a flash of what the world looks like with the Christ eyes. It's a gift of grace that he gives, and he promises to reveal himself to those who seek him. A word maybe to all of my Christian friends, to the rest of us here. So much of what Paul is doing in his letter of 2 Corinthians, is he is encouraging the Corinthians to not go back to the old way of regarding. He's saying, don't regard through the eyes of the flesh anymore. Continue to regard through the eyes of Christ. Hold on to the new creation vision. I think sometimes as Christians, we start out, we see the world with the eyes of Christ, and then we lose some of that along the way, and our vision gets clouded, and, and then we want, to, we want to see again. But I would say the same thing to us as Christians that I'd say to our non-Christian friends, is we can't make ourselves see either. It's also a gift from God. We too have to ask for it in faith and receive it as a gift. And what I would say is if you've been seeking after this, these new creation vision of the world and you're trying to find a way of seeing Christ, but it's not coming together, don't be discouraged. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that in this life, we are going to see through a glass darkly. We don't see fully in all the ways that we desire to. It's a, it's a process and a journey. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that he himself 
hasn't obtained this vision, that he presses on to know Christ, to see Christ. He wants to see Christ in all his fullness. He hasn't got there yet, but he's working towards it. And he tells the Philippians, you keep working towards it too. But then he says this, just hang on to and live up to what you've already obtained. The vision that you have right now, you have some vision of Christ. Don't despair because it's not all the way there. Just live faithfully with what vision Christ has given you and then continue to strive and press on for more. Now here in this passage, Paul applies this new creation way of seeing the world in two specific spheres. He sees it in the way that we regard others and the way we regard Jesus. And we're going to look at both of those next week. But before we get there, I want to look at two other spheres that are not as explicit in this text. The way we regard the world and the way we regard ourselves. And if you're still feeling a bit vague about the difference between regarding according to the flesh and regarding according to Christ, then maybe thinking about it in these two distinct frames of reference will help to provide some more clarity. So just hang in there. All right, I've got two questions for you to help guide you through the remainder of the sermon. How do you regard the world and how do you regard yourself? So let's start with how do you regard the world? For Paul, to regard the world according to the flesh is to see the world according to the standards and values that are derived from the physical world without consideration for God, as though the physical world and the material body was all that existed and all that mattered. Now, this is not a question of whether or not you believe in God, because we can believe in God all we want, just like Paul did when he was a Pharisee, just like the super apostles do, but still view the world according to the flesh. Because to see the world with fleshly eyes is to make judgments and evaluations about what matters most in life based solely on the visible world of the here and now, what you see with your eyes and what you are experiencing in the present life with your body. So all the important questions in life, questions like, what is my social standing? Do people like me? Do people respect me? Do people love me? How safe am I? How comfortable am I? Or as Jesus says, what am I going to eat? And what am I going to drink? And what am I going to wear? All of these are fine and appropriate and legitimate questions. But if you are answering these questions without consideration for God, then you are viewing the world, you are regarding the world according to the flesh. And regarding the world according to the flesh will leave you anxious, exhausted, and depressed. And that's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us that regarding the world, it's not his language, but it's the idea that regarding the world, thinking of the world according to the flesh, will cause anxiety. Or if you succeed for a season in cobbling together your little corner of the world, then you end up prideful and self-reliant like the Pharisees. And then you will be anxious, exhausted, and depressed when your little corner of the world comes crumbling down. And Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you can build a house, but if it's not built upon the solid foundation of the rock, then it's all going to fall down and fall apart. And so we can, 
We can cobble together our little homes independent of God, but they're all going to come down in the day of judgment with the flood. Because a world without God is a world without hope. I read an article earlier this week by a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist works primarily with adolescents. And he was writing about the perils facing today's teens. And if you're a parent, you're probably following along with the trends and you know that the rates of anxiety and depression and suicide among teens has skyrocketed in the last 15 years. If I'd been more forward-thinking, I would have had some, some graphs to show it, but it's just amazing how much anxiety and depression and suicide and suicide ideation is present in teens today that it's just skyrocketed in the last 15 years. And in the article, the psychotherapist was recounting a meeting, one of his counseling appointments, with a 13-year-old girl who had suicidal ideations. And this is what he wrote. He said, listening to my young patient, it was questions about an unpredictable future that seemed most salient in her suicidal ruminations. She spoke passionately about climate change, about racism and inequality, and about all the mental health issues of her friends who were on this medication or that medication, and who had eating disorders, attention disorders, self-harming behaviors, and depression. And her burgeoning sexuality was also greeted as a threat. How can I be a sexual woman in this environment, she wondered. And he goes on to observe that today's adolescents are investigating their world for its failings in a way that touches an open wound in this country. Truth be told, we all have these questions, he writes, about how precarious life is, how to live with the hopelessness of the future. And then he asks this question. What happens when we all realize that the escalator, so crucial to the American dream, doesn't actually go anywhere? Listen, if you regard the world according to the flesh, it's a hopeless world. If this world is all there is, then God have mercy. The elevator doesn't actually go anywhere. The spike in teen anxiety and depression and suicide, social scientists and psychologists have noted this, it's timed with the release of the iPhone. And social scientists and psychologists are increasingly talking about this connection. No one quite has it nailed down. And correlation isn't causation. And so no one quite knows why these two things have emerged together. But in my view, at least one of the reasons for the connection between the spike in teen anxiety and the release of the iPhone with, is the iPhone's easy access, quick access, to global and cultural information. And it has tragically given our children a premature window into the futility of the world according to the flesh. And 13-year-olds are filling their minds with news about global warming and war in Ukraine and sexual violence against women and political hate and racism and on and on it goes. And I mean, it overwhelms us as adults. 
It used to be that kids didn't realize the escalator didn't go anywhere until they were 50, when they had a proper boomer midlife crisis. <laughs> but now all of our 13-year-olds, God bless them, our 13-year-olds are filling their minds with this and they are realizing prematurely that the elevator doesn't go anywhere. And it's crushing a whole generation of children. Because why grow up and get a job and get married when the whole thing ends in one big inward curved death spiral? No wonder they're all anxious and depressed. But listen, the world is what the world has always been. It's always been true that if we embrace the world according to the flesh, it is just an inward curved death spiral. It is true that the elevator goes nowhere. But, but, if we regard the world in Christ, oh, there's so much beauty in the world, such goodness and such joy and glory baked into the world. So kids, don't despair of the world. Not because the world is so great, but because God is in the world and his love is in the world. And you can ride the escalator all the way to the top because God is at the top. And he's not just at the top. He's also here with you right now riding the escalator. And he's not just with you riding the escalator. He is the escalator. He himself, in Christ, is the escalator. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life of the world. And I know that sin clouds him up and covers him over so that he can be hard to see and he can be hard to find. But he's here with you right now beneath the surface of everything that he has made, the broken things and the beautiful things. And he loves you. And my earnest prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that you would know and come to know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that being rooted and grounded in his love, you would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for you in Christ. The world can be so full of joy and happiness when we regard it in him. So kids, I would say to you, reach out to him. Reach out to him and ask him to give you just a glimpse of himself, just a taste of his love for you. And then be patient and wait for him. And while you wait, trust your parents whose spiritual eyes can see a little bit further down the road than your own. That word of hope is not just a word of hope for kids. That's a word of hope for all of us. Because the internet in this 
technology age and the rushing current of information that makes us touch every single thing that's happening in the world has also made it hard for adults just as much as kids to hide from the futility of the world when regarded according to the flesh. Everything we see in the internet, everything that comes at us in our social feeds, maybe not everything, maybe 98% of everything, is all a picture of the world judged according to the flesh, regarded through the eyes of the flesh. And it is a despairing vision. The entire modern Western world is now seeing in fresh ways, with fresh eyes, the futility of all things. But that's only because the modern Western world is seen according to the flesh. To regard the world according to the flesh leaves us all miserable and hopeless. But to regard the world according to the love of God in Jesus brings us such hope and such joy and such freedom. And God wants us to see the world with the eyes of Christ rather than the eyes of the flesh. Not so we can live moral lives and check off on the checklist all the moral things that we're supposed to do, but so that we will be able to live joyful lives and be, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, filled up with all the fullness of God's love for us in Christ. So we need to regard the world through the eyes of Christ. Well, how do you regard yourself? These so often they go together. To regard myself according to the flesh is to regard myself as only flesh. And when we regard according to the flesh, we regard ourselves according to the flesh, the same despair and anxiety that a whole generation of teens is feeling about the futility of the world becomes directed inward towards ourselves. Now, perhaps the most obvious way that we can view ourselves according to the flesh is to fixate on our own flesh, our literal flesh, our bodies. Now, that's a losing game, even for the most beautiful among us. Because if I'm only my body, then when my body is beautiful, I'm worth something. But when my body loses its beauty, or is not beautiful, that I'm not worth anything. And even the best of bodies break down and sag. And if we're nothing more than our bodies, we're all doomed. I mean, some of us can hold on to our beauty longer than others. I mean... <laughs> but, even the, but even the best of us Go the way of all flesh. And that's perhaps a particular word, again, for teens and young people. Because when we're young is when we have the best shot of putting our hope in our bodies. And God bless the young body. I wish my body was young again. If you're still young, enjoy your strength and your beauty, such as you have it as a gift from God. Because it is a gift from God. It's a good gift from God. Be thankful for it. But don't put your hope in it. Put your hope in the one who gave it to you. 
because his love for you transcends and goes beyond the inevitable decay of your body's strength and beauty. But regarding ourselves according to the flesh doesn't just mean that we become fixated on our bodies. Regarding ourselves according to the flesh means that we think in fleshly, earthly ways about who we are. That we find our identity and our value bound up in our accomplishments or our money or the size of our home or the integrity of our family or the respect we get at work, or the love we get from our boyfriend or girlfriend, anytime we find our value and our worth solely in the things of this world, independent of God, we are regarding ourselves according to the flesh. And the truth is that all of those things will crumble and fade, just like all earthly things do. And as they crumble and fade, our sense of value and identity crumbles and fades with them. Even the best accomplishments are forgotten. Even the best family has skeletons in its closet. And even if it doesn't, the whole family ends up as skeletons anyway because we all go down into the grave (laughs) and then we're all forgotten then even the best homes are eventually torn down. There's nothing that we can construct in this life that can last and endure. And if we tie our identity and our value and our sense of being to these things of this world, we are living according to the flesh. This is why we live lives of such anxiety. Again, all those things are great. Would that we had all of us grand accomplishments and nice homes and big loving families and respect at work and so forth. And to the extent that we have those things, we should receive those things as gifts from God because they are beautiful and good things. But our hope and our identity and our values needs to be in God's love for us, not the gifts that God has given us. Otherwise, all that waits for us at the end of the road is the death and decay that comes when all of God's earthly gifts die. Ah, but listen, when I see myself, when you see yourself, when I see myself, not merely as one earth creature among other earth creatures, when I see myself most fundamentally as a beloved child of God, with an eternal soul and an eternal hope in Christ's resurrection, when I see that my identity is not bound up simply in what others say about me or my accomplishments or the integrity of my family or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my husband or my wife or the respect that I get at work, but rather that my identity and value is bound up in God's love for me and that nothing can take that away from me, and that nothing can make God love me more, and that nothing can cause him to love me less. Then I am regarding according to Christ. And there is such great peace and comfort in that. So how do you regard yourself? Do you regard yourself according to the flesh or according to God's love for you 
in Christ. God loves you. He loves you. Find your peace and your sense of self in him. To be a new creation in Christ means that I have been given a supernatural capacity to see the world according to Christ, with the eyes of Christ. And the eyes with which Christ sees the world are the eyes of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish with the world, but would have everlasting life. The world has been broken by sin. and We have been broken by sin. But you know what? That's okay. Because the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of ourselves is just a necessary reminder that the true everlasting life of the world is not in the world and it's not in ourselves but it's ultimately in God. Pray that God would give you the eyes of Christ to see the truth of the world and the truth of yourself, the truth of who God is in his love for you. Let me pray for all of us towards that end. Father, we, we were, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were without God and without hope in this world before you found us. And when we see this world according to the eyes of the flesh, there's just nothing but despair there if we're honest with ourselves. But when we see the world with the eyes of your Son, with the new creation eyes that you give us, through the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Oh, Lord, we see such beauty and we see such goodness. We see such hope. And I pray, God, for, for all of us that you would increase our capacity to see with the eyes of Christ. And God, I pray for kids here in our church. I pray for a whole generation of kids that have despaired too early. have seen beyond their years quicker than they've been able to see with your eyes. God, I pray that you would meet them and you would reveal yourself to them. and You would give them the eyes of Christ to see the beauty that's still in this world, most fundamentally to see you. God, we love you. We thank you that there's such hope and joy and love in you. Help us to find our way to you, we pray. In your son's name, amen. Mm-hmm.